Hey, we had a good response to the Women's Refuge 5K yesterday. We had 14 people from Vera Christian Church registered. I think that was the third largest group that was out there. It was about 350 people that came out to race. So it was good. A number of our, we had four people from our church that won medals in their age groups. They divide up that up into age groups. So they did real good. So, yeah, this is not like eighth grade soccer where everybody gets a, a medal or a trophy. You know, we got, oh, look at that. Here's my, I, I forgot I had this on. I'm sorry. I was, was looking at it in the mirror earlier. I thought I'd taken it off. That's embarrassing. I'm very sorry. I'm just going to put it right here where nobody will, nobody will be distracted by that. So if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Today we're on the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a mom who was trying to explain that to her eight-year-old daughter, and then she said, the daughter said, well, what's, what's adultery, Mom? So mom's trying to think of a, a definition when the daughter says, oh, I think I know what it is. What's that, honey? She says, you, you're not supposed to cut down an adult tree. No, that's not exactly it. It's not that simple. I kind of wish that it was. Uh, what the, the overarching principle in this commandment is the sanctity of marriage. This is the commandment that protects the sanctity of marriage and, and sex within that marriage relationship. So we can't really talk about it without talking about those two things. So we're going to have the talk today. So I hope nobody gets nervous. I'm nervous. Y'all pray for me, but that's what we're going to talk about. We're just going to say four things about marriage today. First of all, God defines for us the essence of marriage. What is the essence of marriage? Well, look at God's definition, the biblical definition of that, and it is four things. Marriage is designed to be complementary by God. It's a complementary relationship. So God creates Adam there in the garden and all the animals. Remember how he has the animals come before Adam so that Adam could name each one of the animals, but it also says that to see if there was a, a helper suitable for him. That's, that's part of what he was, Adam was looking at, and he could not, he could not, which I'm sure we can all understand. Because the sloth, I'm sure, was too slow, the cheetah was too fast, porcupine was too prickly, the cat just didn't care, right? So, and so we read this in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. It's the specific purpose. Verses 21 and 22, so God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man, Genesis 2.23. Adam says, upon seeing Eve, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. These two are literally made for each other. And verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the one flesh speaks of the sexual union, but also being one on every other level. This is our closest possible human relationship where we're sharing our hopes and our dreams, our aspirations, including our disappointments, and our failures, shortcomings, all of that is shared in the marriage union. Now, I understand half the people in this country are, are not married. Half the people in the country are not married. I looked at the stats for Indian River County. It's 53% are married, 47% are not married. Probably that's reflected in our own congregation. But there's some things here for singles that we're going to be talking about as well. Just want to be clear, the Bible says being single is not a morally inferior status at all. We can fulfill God's will. Be useful in the kingdom as a single, just as we can as a marriage. But anyway, complementary is number one. Number two, it's an exclusive relationship. It's one man, one woman for life. It's, well, that's reflected. God created Adam and he created Eve. It's these two, 
That's the way it's designed to be. I, got, I was able to hear Bob Russell preach this past weekend. Some of you will recognize his name. He was at one time a preacher at one of the largest churches in America, but now he's retired and he goes preaches in other places. So I heard him at the state minister's meeting in Kissimmee, and his son preaches on the west coast of Florida, and he said in his sermon, Bob mentioned that his son was preaching on this very subject. He said what I just said, one man, one woman for life. That's the ideal for marriage. That's the ideal. So a couple met his son, on the way out the door, they were guests that day. They said, that kind of hate speech is why we don't go to church. We'll never be back. Okay. So, believe it or not, that's kind of controversial in our society today. It's becoming countercultural. But to those who hate the truth, the truth sounds hateful. This marriage is designed to be an exclusive relationship. <clears throat> now, in March of this past year, at the Academy Awards, at the Academy Awards. I doubt anyone was watching live, but we all know what happened there, right? Um, something happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock that can be described in one word. What word would that be? Slap. Slap. Okay, but let me, uh, Will Smith apparently felt that Chris Rock had insulted his wife Jada. But in September of 2021, Will Smith was profiled in GQ magazine where he described his relationship with Jada as an open marriage. You know what an open marriage is. Matt Walsh commented on the open marriage concept, writing, marriage by definition is meant to be closed. A marriage can't be open for the same reason that you cannot build a house without walls or a roof. The walls and roof are the whole point of the house. Get rid of those, and now you're homeless. A blanket laid out on the pavement is not an open house or a new house or a consensually non-walled house. It's just not a house. It's a non-house. It's the opposite of a house. And if we start calling that a house, we have not expanded the definition of a house, but instead have done away with the concept of a house entirely. And so he's using the analogy there of marriage. This is the way God designed it to be exclusive, closed, and not open. All right, third thing, we're talking about the essence of marriage is that it is a loving relationship. It's not just a legal contract for Christians. It's to be characterized by love. It is a reflection of God's love for his people. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, for instance, uses that as an analogy. God says to Israel, I will make you my wife forever. He's saying this to his people, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. And again, in chapter 11, verse 4, I led them with ropes of human kindness with ties of love. Christ's love for the church is used as analogous for a husband's love for his wife. In Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is the agape, unselfish, self-giving, sacrificial kind of love that spouses are to have. Two people who love each other like that in a marriage are experiencing marriage the way God meant it to be. So it's a loving relationship. And then finally, it's a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship. This is where the, the binding agreement, that's what a covenant is, a binding agreement comes from. And God, again, uses his relationship with Israel as the analogy, Jeremiah 31, 22. The covenant which I made with their fathers... In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, I was a husband to them. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, she is your companion, he says to the Israelite men, speaking of their wives, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When we think covenant, 
we should think commitment. This is the commitment portion of marriage. And any of us who've been married for any length of time understand that often it's the commitment that sustains the marriage when the emotions and the feelings may come and go. All right, so that's just the essence of marriage as God has laid it out. All right, secondly, I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about four things total. That was just thing number one. Thing number two, I want to talk about the purposes of marriage. And this is where there's an overlap with sex in the marriage. It helps with both these purposes. Number one is procreation. This is in the original mandate to Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Malachi 2.15, has not the Lord made them one? And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Not just children, but godly children. Paul says in Ephesians, to raise them in the Lord. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So procreation, number one, is for children. That, all, that doesn't always happen in all marriages, in all families, but there are other ways. There's adoption and there's foster parenting and there's ways to be spiritual parents and grandparents to people in the church. But even if that's not the case, there's a second purpose in marriage and that is oneness. Oneness, it's that complementary, it's that doing life together, the oneness. Genesis 2, 23, when Adam sees Eve, he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the Hebrew word for man here is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. And one of the commentators I read saw when Eve first saw Adam, she said, ish. And when Adam first saw Eve, he said, Isha. But the point being that these two words point to the complementary nature of the relationship, just like our word man and woman. And there's to be a, a oneness there. And so where does sex fit in? Sex reinforces both of those purposes in marriage. That's how procreation happens. We understand that. It also reinforces the oneness in the marriage. When I teach this uh, to youth, like older middle school and high school, I like to use this uh, example of this object lesson. Some of you DIYers would be familiar with J.B. Weld. So this is two-part adhesives. There's this part and this part. Sometimes they're called reaction adhesives, reactionary adhesives, because there's a chemical reaction that takes place when you blend them together. So you put a little dot of this on a piece of wood, and you put a little dot of this part on the piece of wood, the two parts. You mix them together, and then you stick the wood together or the stone or whatever it is you're binding. That's the strongest kind of adhesive that you can get, are these two-part reactionary adhesives. I did, I'm not going to do this live. I know I'll get it on my fingers, and then you'll be taking me to the hospital to surgically separate them. I did this on Friday with these two pieces of wood. So when I'm teaching the teenagers... Uh, I invite them to come on up and try and you know, pull, pull this thing apart. Y'all can try it too after church if you want. And they never can. They never have been able to. Very hard. But even if they did, they couldn't do it without destroying the wood, without breaking the wood. Now, so, and here's, so this is an object lesson. What's the point? The point is the power of the sexual union in bonding two people together. And I think, I may not have any middle schoolers or high schoolers in here, maybe some watching we may have kids or grandkids in that age group. I think it's very, very important to teach this to that age group because what happens is the dating relationships begin earlier and earlier now these days, but older middle school and high school. So if you've got a boy and a girl, a young man and a young woman, and they, they start dating and they begin interacting, 
and building a relationship, and that can go on for months, maybe a, a one-year or a two-year, even a three-year relationship. And they're talking, and they're holding hands, and they're touching. They may progress to kissing. It may even progress beyond that. But the, so they have these long talks. Remember how when you're recording, you talk for hours and hours at school, maybe, and then go home and get on the phone and talk for hours and hours. And it's like, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. You know, so all of this conversation, all this time spent together, and it may, or, it may or may not become a sexual relationship or partially sexual relationship, but what's happening during that time is a bond is setting up. A bond is being established. And especially if it progresses to the sexual stage, there's, there's two very good books on this by Dr. Donald Joy. One's called Bonding, and the other one's called Rebonding. And where he's, there's 12 steps, progressive steps, to establishing a bond, which culminates in the sexual union. And you've heard that song, the first cut is the deepest. And it is, that original bond. Now, even though that boyfriend and girlfriend may not get married, not, not all high school sweethearts marry and go on into other relationships, nevertheless, that's like a divorce and the ghost of that first relationship will haunt future relationships. It's not that there can't be future relationships in happy marriages. I'm just saying it dilutes. One definition of adultery, when you adulterate a liquid, you dilute it. So you've got a glass of milk, you put, pour water into it, you're adulterating that liquid. It's diluted. So we'll, sometimes high school sweethearts will find each other on Facebook or go to a, a high school reunion and he's married with children and she's married with children but you'll read about them, they leave their families, and they come back together. How could that happen? It's because they bonded. They bonded. So I like to teach that to young people. I think that's a very valuable lesson for them to understand what they're dealing with when they enter into relationships like this. And take it to that point. If it's not protected by the covenant of marriage, they may be setting themselves up for great heartbreak and difficulty in future life. So... But my point is that sex within marriage is designed to reinforce the bond of marriage. Very important to the marriage relationship. And it, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a shameful thing when it's as God has designed it. Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. Hebrews 13.4, have respect for marriage. Always be faithful to your partner because God will punish anyone who is immoral or unfaithful in marriage. The sex and the marriage, they go together. Anything that's apart from that is contrary to the will of God. All right, the third thing I want to say today, God prohibits sex apart from marriage. God prohibits sex apart from marriage. Before we get to adultery proper, there, there are other types of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 reads, The unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. The word for sexual immoral right there, sexually immoral, is pornea. That's the word for the umbrella category of sexual sin is pornea. Beneath that umbre umbrella is adultery and all kinds of other sexual sin. Let me just say four ways here that it's possible to sexually sin apart from adultery. Number one is living together. Sexually, this is sometimes called fornication. Again, the word would be pornea, fornication. So while 50% of people in America are not married, that does not mean that 50% of people in America are celibate. We all know that. There are a lot of people who are living together. A lot of young people living together before they get married. 
That's, that's, by the way, statistically, decreases one's chances for a happy, flourishing, successful marriage in the future. That's not a wise thing to do for one's future happiness. But even it's increasingly true of older adults who are living together, but they're not married. And all kinds of rationales are given for that. But that's, what the, that's a sin. The Bible calls that pornea. That's a sin. So there was a mother who suspected that her adult son and his, her son's roommate, uh, Stephanie, and he was Brian, they lived together, supposedly just a friendship. She suspected it was something more. And she was over there for dinner, and they were eating, and her son noticed how she was looking at them. He said, Mom, I, I can tell by the way you're looking at us. I know what you're thinking. Don't worry about it. This is just a platonic relationship. So she said, okay, all right, and she left. Now, a couple of days later, Stephanie came to Brian. She said, you know, ever since your mother was here, we've been missing our silver gravy ladle. You don't suppose your mom could have taken it, do you? And Brian said, I, I can't imagine that. But he said, I'll ask her. So he sent her this email, dear mom, I'm not saying that you did take the gravy ladle from the house. I'm not saying you did not take the gravy ladle from the house. But the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Love, Brian. Three days later, mom responded, dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Stephanie. I'm not saying you do not sleep with Stephanie. But the fact remains that if Stephanie was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. I probably shouldn't joke about that, but I figured it was going to be so heavy by now, I needed something there. So there's that. Homosexual, homosexual activity is another type of sexual sin. I know in our society there's great efforts to normalize that. There are efforts to reinterpret Scripture to normalize that. The way I read the Bible, that is sexual sin. Uh, Same-sex attraction is not sin, right? but acting on that is Three, anti-biblical divorces. And I'm just going to point out four, so this is three or four. Anti-biblical divorces. The Bible gives three grounds for divorce. Adultery, abandonment. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians 7 is abandonment. And abuse. Um, I, I believe abuse is a subcategory of abandonment. It's actually worse than abandonment in some ways. And I, I take that primarily from 1 Corinthians 7 when he's speaking of marriage and he says God's called us to live in peace. So I, I would say, but the, the, those are the those are the three biblical grounds for divorce. Incompatibility. That's not one of them. It's not one of them. You know, if you're in an incompatible marriage, incompatibility, praise God. There's so much that one can learn from that kind of a relationship. I almost feel sorry for you people that are so compatible that you never have a crossword. How are you supposed to learn? How do, you know? But anyway, but I do want to circle back and say, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out. Get out. I do not believe, and I the count the scholars that I read and the commentators that I read, I do not know a serious Bible scholar or commentator who believes that a Christian needs to stay in an abusive relationship. So I would say, yes, get out. And whether that or not that leads to the divorce or the marriage, that's something else altogether. And finally, sinful sexual thoughts. Talking about ways to sin sexually. There, it's it's probably the most common types of sin are sexual sins, and there's so many ways to do this. Simple sexual thoughts, usually referred to as lusts. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. With the lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Peter speaks of those who have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Randy Alcorn writes, with every little glance that fuels our lust, we push ourselves closer to the edge where gravity will take over and bring our lives crashing down. That's so we've cast a broad net on sexual sin. When we come now to the fourth point that I want to make, God protects sex in marriage and speaking specifically of adultery. Uh, there may be somebody here who's done that. I don't know who you are, probably. I don't want to know who you are. I'm not making eye contact with anybody in particular, right? So we've cast that broad net because probably all of us have reason to feel uncomfortable. And we should not feel comfortable with sin or with sexual sins. Ground is level right here. Nobody looking down on anyone else. Actually, my goal, my goal is to protect and strengthen the marriages that we have right now and any marriages we may be moving into for the singles in the future. God protects sex within marriage. Adultery is a married person who's having a sexual relationship with someone who is not their spouse. It is a serious sin. It, it, in a way, it breaks almost all of the other Ten Commandments. Let me run that through with you very quickly. Adultery is unfaithfulness. You know, the first commandment, have no other gods before me. The adulterer's partner and adultery becomes one's idol, one's God. And again, this is to be patterned after our relationship with God. Adultery is hypocrisy. So it breaks the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We wear the name Christian. Adultery is dishonorable, breaking the fifth commandment. To honor your parents, our parents taught us better. Adultery is destructive. It breaks the sixth commandment against murder. This is like destructive to one's spirit. Proverbs says 632, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Adultery is theft, breaking the eighth commandment against stealing because I'm taking something that does not belong to me and giving that to someone else. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Our body does not belong to each other, ourselves anymore when we get married. It belongs to our spouse. Adultery is deception, which breaks the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. It usually involves lying and living a lie. Adultery is covetousness, which breaks the tenth commandment. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And adultery, finally, is lovelessness. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, in her book on the Ten Commandments, writes, When you love someone, you don't behave in ways that bring pain, fear, doubt, or insecurity to their lives, minds, and hearts. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. King David committed adultery, and he confessed, and he was forgiven. In fact, his prayer of repentance is recorded in Psalms chapter 51. It's a, if we've committed adultery or other sexual sin, that's a great psalm to go back to and pray that. And we can be forgiven. And it doesn't necessarily have to lead to divorce, to the dissolution of the marriage. There can be forgiveness. There can be restoration of trust through a process. Usually it involves Christian counseling. And I'm, I'm a big advocate of Christian counseling. Most of us did not get enough premarital counseling before we were married, and we could all probably use some Christian marital counseling. Uh, there's, there's really no stigma 
attached to that anymore. And sometimes a spouse will say, well, he's the problem. He needs to go get fixed by the counselor, and then we'll be fine. She's the problem. She needs to go get counseling, then we'll be fine. That's not really true. In a marriage, what happens in Christian marital counseling is he goes and learns to work on himself. Then she goes, spends time with the counselor. She works on herself. And then they come together with the counselor and work on the coupleship. Those are three different things. The coupleship is its own thing with its own dynamic and communication. All right. So I'm a big advocate. I probably had more counseling than anybody in this room except for one or two of you, and you know who you are. And I'm about due for some more. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. And it's also, of course, we're relying on the Holy Spirit. We're not fighting this in our own willpower. We're connecting with the vine and the Holy Spirit and standing in the power of the Lord. So let me close with Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll is a well-known preacher of maybe a past generation by now. But he writes how he was at a conference and he was preaching. And after it was over, he went to get on the elevator and go up to his hotel room. And there was an attractive woman in the elevator. And she looked at him and she said, hey, handsome, you want a party? And he said, I wish I could tell you I wasn't tempted. He said, but I was. I was. But he said, the scripture that popped into my mind was the one in Galatians. And it said, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he shall reap destruction. If he sows to the spirit, he shall reap eternal life. That's what came to my mind. And I said, no thanks. Kind of tired, just going to go to my room. One of the best things we can do is rehearse in our mind when the hour of evil comes, when the day of temptation comes, how are we going to respond? We're going to respond in a faithful and an obedient way to God. I want you to bow with me in prayer right now, and I'm going to pray a prayer that's modeled after Psalm 51, David's great prayer of repentance. Have mercy on us, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of our sin. Wash us clean from our guilt. Purify us from our sins and we will be clean. We will be whiter than snow. Give us back our joy again. You have broken us. Now let us rejoice. Remove the stain of our guilt. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and make us willing to obey you. Then we will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal our lips, O Lord, that our mouths may praise you. Amen.